Welcome to the Judge John Hodgman podcast. I'm bailiff Jesse Thorne. We're in chambers this week, clearing the docket. With me, as always, is the king of all chefs. Sorry, Raekwon. Judge John Hodgman. I'm the king of all chefs now? I don't deserve this. Because <laughs> we're going to do food stuff on this episode. I made you the king of all chefs. If anything, I am the uh, the prince regent. If anything, I am the dowager countess. If anything, I am the... <laughs> I mean, because we have a special guest. We have an expert of all experts with us right now. We have a man with us who is both a great cook and a great chef. Uh, He's the author of the James Beard award-winning cookbook, The Food Lab, Better Home Cooking Through Science, which I have at my home because I paid actual money to buy it and it's my favorite cookbook. He also has a children's book coming out later this year called Every Night is Pizza Night. He is also the chef behind the Bay Area restaurant Worst Hall, which is currently preparing and delivering meals to hospitals and community centers. Friend of the court, Kenji Lopez-Alt. Hi, Kenji. How are you, friend? Good. How are you doing? Good. I just watched a video of you uh, making a steak using a GoPro camera. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's that's like my new... my new. Th- I'm, I'm apparently a YouTube creator now. So uh, <laughs> that, that's what I've transitioned <laughs> into now that I'm stuck mostly at home is I, I, I strap a camera to my head and I cook every day. I learned a lot about steak cooking. I thought it was some kind of like intense sous vide technique where it's like, all you do is you fill this baggie up with water, throw a steak in there, throw a GoPro in there. <laughs> no, it's it's kind of the opposite. You know, it's like... It's like my book is very much about like sort of precision and you do this for this reason, you do right. this for that reason. And my, my actual home cooking is just like, uh, it doesn't really matter. That, that's kind of the catchphrase of the show is um, it doesn't really matter. You can do this if you want. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> I think my favorite part of uh, J. Kenji Lopez-Alt's uh, steak cooking head video uh, was which I watched all of. It's like a 20 minute long video with Kenji just narrating cooking his family lunch. And uh, Kenji is like one of his greatest contributions to world cookery is something called the reverse sear, a method of cooking a steak that he developed for, I think for, what was it, for for Cook's Illustrated? for Cook's Illustrated, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, like 15 years ago. And uh, it's something that has changed many a steak cooker's life. Uh, And uh, Kenji was like, yeah, well, I know I invented that one, but I'm just going to cook it in the pan today. (laughs) It was great. Although I don't claim to have invented it because I'm I'm sure there were people doing it. If you go to Meatheads, um, AmazingRibs.com, I think there's like a full history of all the people who were doing that in various ways um, before I came and developed it in a different, slightly different way and um, published it in Cook's Illustrated. But uh, But you road tested it. You stress tested it. If people don't understand the reverse sear method is a method of cooking a steak or it could be a pork chop, right? Yep. Or even anything really, yeah. Any kind of any kind of big slab of protein. Yes. And and in and what you do is you cook it in a very what they call slow oven at a very low temperature using a meat thermometer to get it precisely to the temperature that you want it to be or maybe just below and then finishing it over a hot fire or in a hot cast iron pan. Mm-hmm. We call it the reverse sear because normally you would start by searing, right? And then you might finish it in an oven. But this way, it's almost like a, a, a modified sous vide technique where you are cooking for temperature first and then finishing it. Yeah, that, that's actually how the, the how I came up with the technique because I had been working in restaurants where we were doing sous vide, but sous vide devices at the time were still like $1,500, $2,000. Right. You know, the home devices didn't exist. So... I, I was just thinking, like, well, like, what's a way we can sort of mimic this approach 
for home cook. Um, and that, that how, that's how we landed on uh, reverse here. Although we didn't even call it reverse here at the time. Someone came up with that name on the internet later. Right. So, and also that's how they, you know, the big, like the house of prime rib in, uh, in San Francisco, mm-hmm. all those big prime rib places, they are slow roasting those prime ribs. Oh it's yeah. Same, yeah. Low and slow. It's yeah. like low and slow, even though it's not, I don't know. I could talk, I could talk about cooking all day long, but I don't <laughs> want to because I'm not the king of chef. Oh, I do have to say this, Kenji. So happy you're here because it's just, it's totally coincidental that uh, I just made this weekend your quote the best chili ever recipe. Oh, okay. Unquote, that you can find over at seriouseats.com. Yeah. That's a recipe I haven't made since I wrote it down because <laughs> it's very involved. <laughs> it is very involved, and you approach cooking with a with a scientist's curiosity. And and every I know that everything is happening for a reason. But as I was going through this recipe, mm-hmm. I was like, okay, then I gotta, 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 I gotta roast these cloves and grind them, and then <laughs> get the soy sauce and two, not one, not three, but two anchovy fillets are going into this. And all of this, I'm like, this guy is overthinking this quite a bit. <laughs> but then I got to the part where it says one teaspoon marmite. Right. And I was like, well, I'm making this. <laughs> if this guy's putting Marmite in his chili, I know he's onto something because Marmite is, is one of the most in, intensely beloved flavors on earth by me. Oh, really? Okay. I completely I saw where, well, it, for people who don't know, I mean, Marmite is this, it's like this fermented yeast product that British people put on toast. Yeah. Right. And yep. it's very funky and umami-ish. Right. And I was like, oh, this is going to, add a ton of depth of flavor that I never thought. I got to give this a try. <laughs> and I made it and I served it to my family. And my wife said, don't ever make chili any other way again. Oh, that's good. I was going <laughs> to say, you know, the, the secret to that recipe, really, the, the secret to that recipe's success is to make it so difficult that no matter how good it is at the end, people feel like they have to like it because they put so much work into it. No, <laughs> no. And I can tell you that's not true because my wife put zero work into it. <laughs> Well, that's good to know. <laughs> you know, we're we're all at home right now. You know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah. and I and I spent the afternoon, well, actually the morning and the afternoon, getting this thing together, <laughs> having a great time. <laughs> but by the end of it, I, I kind of said to my wife, "Look at me cooking over here. Why aren't you helping?" Right. She's like, you wanted to do this. And I'm like, you're right, I did. And she liked it, which I, I'm sorry. I've now, I feel like I've now sentenced you to a life of, of overly fussy chili making. <laughs> no, it's not. I mean, because the, ba- the basics are there. I mean, yeah. the, and, and the way you lay out, I mean, one, one of the things about making really good chili is you want to use actual dried chilies. Yeah, that's, that's the most important part. that's intimidating for a yeah. lot of people, right? Yeah, like lose the powder, use real dried chilies. Like that's, that's by far the most important thing. You know, if you're not from any sort of Mexican-American heritage, working with dried chilies is intimidating because in fresh form, they have a certain name and then dried form, they have a certain name and sometimes yeah, they have yeah. different kinds of names and you got to go get them. But once you get used to using them and this recipe really lays out a really great sort of sequence of events for seeding the chilies and then cooking them up in that chicken stock after you've browned off the meat, it's perfect. The best chili ever recipe Go get it, everyone. And that's our podcast. Thanks very much. We have more. (laughs)
Look, we're we're gonna have plenty of time with Kenji for me to address roast potatoes and to ask him what's wrong with my chocolate chip cookies. But first, how about a question from a listener? Anna says, My boyfriend uses the word savory as an antonym to spicy. Uh, as in the question, do you want something spicy or savory for dinner? The first couple times he said this, I was confused because any meal we would make for dinner would probably be savory, but it might or might not be spicy. I'd argue almost all spicy foods are also savory. I ask you order him to find a better word to describe comfort foods that are not spicy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Kenji, what, what do you think? I mean, that reminds me of the kinds of things like my, my daughter would say. It's like, should we have a bubble bath or, or a warm bath? It's like, you, it doesn't have to be either or. Like, <laughs> uh, it, could be, it could be both or, or one or the other, you know. Um, yeah, I would say savory, savory and spicy are, are sort of orthogonal. They don't affect each other. You can, you can have spicy foods that are not savory. Um, like if you go to Mexico, they, they eat a lot of sweet foods. Uh, the, the candies are like tamarind candy with chili in it. Really tasty. Um, they're, yeah, they're definitely parts of the world where they eat spicy and sweet at the same time. I would say sweet is the, is the antonym to savory. Um, yes. But yeah, mo- I think in the U.S., most of us are familiar with spicy foods that are always savory. So it does seem weird. To, uh, where, where, I, wonder, I would wonder where her boyfriend is from um, or, or who raised him. Um, yeah, that, I, I'd, say, I'd say spicy and savory, that, that, that's a very strange dichotomy. Whoever raised Anna's boyfriend raised him wrong. Sorry, <laughs> because I hate to do this. Kenji, I hate to go to the dictionary for a couple of reasons. One, it's the worst way to open a school paper. The dictionary definition of savory is blah, 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 right. blah, blah. <laughs> Two, because a, a, a dictionary is sort of an arbitrary, frozen-in-time mm-hmm. picture of language rather than truly a... a, a I mean, ironically, it's not, it, it is not definitive it yes. is constantly evolving. And three, because the, the dictionary of choice of the Judge John Hodgman podcast is, of course, Merriam-Webster, because we have our friend Emily Brewster come on from time to time. And uh, she was uh, she's an editor there mm. and, dis- and discovered in a previously undocumented use of the word A that got in the dictionary. But Merriam-Webster is also my mortal enemy because they... Merriam-Webster claims that a hot dog is a sandwich. Yes. <laughs> I was going to bring that up. I was going to say, you know, as soon as, as soon as you bring in the dictionary, you, are, you know that you've already lost the hot dog debate. <laughs> yeah. How do you feel? Do you, uh, just before we go on with this podcast. Yeah. Well, actually, save, save your response until we get through this question. But I did go to Merriam-Webster. And it says, definition of savory. A, B, C, D, E. Five definitions. One piquantly pleasant to the mind, a savory triumph, Mm. morally exemplary, pleasing to the sense of taste or smell, especially by reason of effective seasoning. It's a hard sentence to say. Maybe punch that one up, Merriam-Webster. And D, (laughs) having a spicy or salty quality without sweetness, specifically defined without sweetness. Yes. So yeah, I would say savory and spicy are, I, I loved your term for it, Kenji, or they are orthogonal. Yes. There is more Venn overlap between spicy and savory. They are not opposites by any means. Now, I have these questions for you. One, tell me more about the Mexican sweet, spicy candy. Okay. And two, is a hot dog a sandwich? <laughs> I'll take the answers in whatever order you prefer. Well, the first one, um, so, you know, in Mexico, also in, also in parts of Southeast Asia, so it's common to have like, 
fruit with chili. Um, so tahin is the name of the, the chili powder stuff that has, so it has, I think it has like powdered lime and chilies in it. Um, it comes in a little mm-hmm. jar with a with a white top and you shake it on um, and, and you, you sprinkle that onto like um, mango slices or pineapple slices. Um, green mango also really tasty. Um, but uh, so at the Mexican market, um, the actually it's a Salvadoran market near me, but they sell a lot of Mexican products um, uh, around the corner from my house. They have these tamarind candies that are I don't know. They're kind of like chewy and sweet and really sour, but then they're coated in um, in chili. Um, mm. And it, yeah, so they're, they're really good. Yeah, yeah, spicy, spicy chili. Yeah. And is a hot dog a sandwich? Thing. Yeah. Well, well, so <laughs> I mean, I think a hot dog is a sandwich in the way that like a potato salad is a is a salad. You know, it's like if there was no other section on the menu, if there's no specific sauce. So at my restaurant, we have a sausage section on the menu. And we have a sandwich section on the menu, and the hot dogs go in the sausage section, not in the sandwich section, even though they're served in a bun. But if there's no yeah. other place on the menu to put a hot dog, I would put it in the sandwich section. Um, you know, same as like if, if there's only one burger. Just left, you should have just left it there, Kenji. You should have left it with the menu. <laughs> so my, my, so my, my argument has always been if I ask a fr- if a friend says to me, hey, I'm going down to the corner to, to the deli, can I get you a sandwich? And I say yes. And then they bring me back a hot dog. I would think, wait a second. What's that's wrong with what it? I, yeah, that, that's, yeah, that's not a What's sandwich. the name of your restaurant again? Worst Hall. Worst Hall? Yeah, W-U-R-S-T. Right. Let me say this. Even though, listeners, even though Kenji seems to be waffling a little bit on this, that Worst Hall gets it right. Worst Hall menu gets it right. Jesse Thorne, I have this question for you. Have you ever put sriracha on a satsuma? That's a lot to ask of me, John. <laughs> this is the Judge Sean Hodgman <laughs> challenge. Listeners, is it satsuma season yet? It's satsuma season's over, baby. Oh. It ended a few weeks ago. Yeah, it won't oh. be back for a while. I'm eating the dregs of the golden nuggets right now. Is that a type of orange also? A golden nugget? That's a Yeah, fruit? that's a... Gold nuggets in like a tangerine, like it's oh, okay. it's, it's sort right. of uh, it's a big and lumpy one, uh, oh, like right, a right, slightly right. bigger satsuma. I think ours, our, we have a satsuma tree in our backyard, and I think it gave its last one like probably a week ago, maybe two weeks ago. Hmm. Now I want to try a sriracha satsuma. Listeners, go over to the Maximum Fun Reddit on the discussion board for this episode. Give us your suggestions for fruits and hot sauce pairings. I'll try them. Watermelon with jalapeno, good. Oh, I like that. That sounds and, nice. and feta that cheese. Sounds Watermelon, feta cheese, and jalapeno. There we go. I could imagine putting a hot sauce on a on a sort of simply sweet uh, fruit, like a cherimoya or something. You just made that word up. No, that's a. That's a <laughs> <laughs> no, I know. I know what a cherimoya. What's that? What's that? What's that goofy <laughs> apple you're always trying to get me to eat? Cherim- what is it called? Yeah, that's yeah. that's what that's what it is. Custard, a- custard apple, they call it. Right? Custard the apple. Custard apple. <laughs> now, the cherimoyas have just started showing up at my at my farmer's All market. Right. They come down from I think from the Santa Barbara area. Anyway, here's something from Andrew. When my friends and I rent a cabin for a long weekend, I'm usually the one that wakes up first in the morning to make a pot of coffee for everyone. I like to pour a cup for myself before the pot is finished brewing. Most modern coffee makers automatically pause the brewing when you remove the pot to pour a cup. My friend John argues, I'm diluting the coffee for the rest of the group, and I should wait until the full pot is complete. 
Please order that I am permitted to continue pouring my coffee regardless of whether the coffee maker has finished making a full pot. Kenji, what do you think? Well, I think given that he's the one who wakes up to make coffee for everyone else, he's allowed to do whatever he wants. I think that that's the basic rule. Wow. But <laughs> um, if, if his friend John is saying that it's diluting, I, you know, I'm, I'm like pretty famously not a coffee drinker, but that's right. knowing how my parents... Um, you know, how my parents' coffee machine works, uh, I would say you probably are diluting it because, I don't know, that water at the beginning is dripping through all the fresh grounds, right? If, assuming it's a drip machine. And, right. and even if it shuts off, even if it doesn't let it drip through, you're still getting the most um, extraction out of, the, out of those first few drips. Um, so I, I would say John is correct in that it is diluting the coffee for everyone else. But, he, I mean, he's the one making the coffee. He gets to, he gets to choose. Kenji, I'm glad that you're not a coffee drinker because you need to leave one type of food nerd alone. Like you're already, you already have to lead. You have the res- the responsibility on your shoulders of leading all the cast iron nerds <laughs> and all the sous vide nerds and then all the umami nerds. I made coffee Twitter angry once because I I I suggested. Oh, there there's somebody. Um, I'm not going to say his name, but somebody who was writing an article, Serious Eats, who. Um, who casually casually mentioned that that blade grinders are worse than burr grinders because they give you uneven grind sizes. Um, and I, on on Twitter, I think I just asked like, um, okay, like like that that clearly makes sense. But do we like but like um like are we sure that uneven grind size is necessarily a bad thing in coffee? It's like I don't, I don't know. Like, can someone explain it to me? And then um and then coffee Twitter got very mad that yeah. I that I would dare question that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm going to say this. This episode, we've not even finished recording this episode, never mind sending it out into the world. And I am already getting angry emails from coffee people about Andrew. Like I just like I I'm 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 getting letters shoved underneath the door of my office right now. Because look, I I uh, am pretty ecumenical about coffee. I like good coffee, I like bad coffee. I like hot coffee. I like cold coffee. I will drink the coffee that was sitting on my desk yesterday. I do not really care a lot, but I do know that there is a science to the extraction of coffee in terms of water temperature, grind, et cetera, et cetera. More science than I care to know about. Right. And I do, I do know that if you grab out that pot and grab a cup, that, that the cup you're having is going to be different than what it would have been if you had let the entire brewing process complete that's why you measure the amount of grounds that's why you measure the amount of water uh, andrew modern coffee makers don't pause the brewing when you pull the carafe out because it makes no difference to the brewing they pause it so that it doesn't affect the counter and your dumb pants and shirt with coffee splattering everywhere <laughs> when you do this thing <laughs> now look i'll abide by the king of chefs j kenji lopez alt and say that it is it is royal privilege apparently it is your it is your royal privilege to mess up the coffee for everyone else if you get up <laughs> and make it you could be messing it up just by making it wrong anyway so i i guess it, i guess he's right john you got to wake up early in the morning when you're when you're out in a cabin with andrew but but frankly andrew frankly i'm i'm uh, i'm sorry that we're all having to stay at home these days but i'm glad you can't rent a cabin anymore because boy oh boy <laughs> You're messing it up. I want an injunction against my wife, who's a Judge John Hodgman listener, 
Uh, I want her to make her coffee before she makes breakfast and breakfast drinks for our children. Uh, I have no standing in this because I tend to get up uh, after she and they have been up for 45 minutes. Mm. But... um, uh, but I would love her to kind of like in the in the spirit of put your own oxygen mask on first before putting them on your children. Uh, I, I would like my wife to uh, take care of her own caffeine needs before she addresses the breakfast drink needs of our of our little ones. So ordered. Thank you. You're welcome. Let's take a quick break. More items on the docket coming up in just a minute on the Judge John Hodgman podcast. You're listening to Judge John Hodgman. I'm bailiff Jesse Thorne. Of course, the Judge John Hodgman podcast always brought to you by you, the members of MaximumFun.org. Thanks to everybody who's gone to MaximumFun.org slash join. And you can join them by going to MaximumFun.org slash join. The Judge John Hodgman podcast is also brought to you this week by Aura. A-U-R-A. It's a simple but meaningful gift that you can give your mom or your dad or your step-grandparent or your uncle or your friend or anyone that you want to keep connected in your life who might not live near you. It's a digital picture frame from Aura. It's perfect for sharing pics of all the things that those friends can't be there for, from family vacations to grandkids' graduation to whatever. I have one of these, and I got one for my dad. And I got one for my mother-in-law, and it's amazing. We look at the photos all day long, and we're able to easily update their Aura frames so they see all the latest pictures from our lives as well. It comes with unlimited storage, simple controls on the frame. You can upload as many photos as you want, and your mom or your dad or your stepdad or your stepmom or your friend or whatever can pick the perfect one. And it takes only about two minutes to set up, seriously. See why it was named the number one digital frame by Wirecutter, uh, The Strategist, and Wired Magazine. Right now, you can save on the perfect gift that keeps on giving by visiting AuraFrames.com. For a limited time, listeners can get $20 off their best-selling frame with code Hodgman. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com, promo code Hodgman. Terms and conditions apply. The Judge John Hodgman podcast is also brought to you this week by Babbel. Okay, it's 2024, 2024. Oh, if hindsight were 2020, I I don't know what I would have done differently. All I know is that I'm taking every day in this year and trying to get better a little bit every day. That's what you do. That's the way progress is made, step by step, day by day, bird by bird. And that's the way it is when you're learning anything, especially a new language with Babbel. And if Babbel can help you start speaking language in just three weeks, Imagine what you could do in the rest of this whole year. Don't pay hundreds of dollars to private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts, real human beings, to help you start speaking a new language in as little as one, two, three weeks. Studies from Michigan State University, Yale University, and others continue to prove that Babbel is better. And that's not just the Yale football team putting their thumb on the scale because they love learning Indonesian from Babbel. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Take that, Yale, I guess. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but this is only for our listeners 
at babble.com slash Hodgman. Welcome back to the Judge John Hodgman podcast. We're clearing the docket with our guest, J. Kenji Lopez-Alt. Kenji is a, a cookbook author. Uh, you've seen him in the New York Times. You've seen him in Serious Eats. Uh, if you don't have a copy of his book, The Food Lab, you should have a copy of his book, The Food Lab. He's got a kid's book coming out called Every Night is Pizza Night. And Kenji, your restaurant, Worst Hall, which is uh, just south of San Francisco, where is it, San Mateo or something like that? San Mateo, yeah. Wow, I nailed it. Uh, <laughs> I haven't been there. Uh, I'd love to go. Um, uh, your restaurant has been making food for uh, hospitals and so on and so forth uh, during the COVID crisis. And you've been helped out in doing so by donations from uh, uh, people who love the restaurant and people who know you from your work elsewhere and so on and so forth, right? Yeah, um, but both both direct donations to the to so like on our website um, or on our on our order online order thing, um, you can you can buy boxes meal boxes directly, um, or um, you can donate to World Central Kitchen or Off Their Plate, who work with a number of restaurants. But we're um, we 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 do some stuff with some work with them as well. Um, yeah, that that's actually like you know that's that's sort of uh, the idea was that we could help the community while also helping to keep as many of our employees employed as possible. Um, so that, that's how we're dealing with the, uh, with the, with the COVID crisis right now. Now, Kenji, I, I mentioned earlier on the program, uh, the issue of potatoes. The other day, our, our friend, uh, John and my friend, Nick Weiger from the Doughboys podcast, mm -hmm. uh, mentioned that because he had been cooking at home more, he was looking for everyone's like special recipe that was not, not special by virtue of super fanciness, but by virtue of utility. And what I told him to cook for for his family, his his wife Natalie, mm -hmm. uh, was your recipe for crispy roasted potatoes. What is the mm -hmm. central thing that separates your roasted potatoes from roasties the world over? Uh, well, it's adding baking soda to the to the water when you boil it. Um, wow. So Baking soda, I mean, it raises the pH of the water. And so the um, pectin, which is the, the carbohydrate glue that kind of holds plant cells together, um, it breaks down more rapidly under higher pHs. So you cut your potatoes up, you put a little baking soda in the water, you boil the potatoes in there, um, and then the outside of them get really kind of rough. Um, and then after that, is, is you, you follow the same sort of typical British roasty thing where you where you toss the potatoes kind of rough up, rough up the surfaces as much as you can, and then you know toss them with oil or butter or, or duck fat or beef fat, whatever you want, um, and then roast them in the oven. Um, but, the, but the baking soda is what, what really um, makes those outside sort of super, you know, gives them those like kind of micro blisters. Is, I, think, I think I call them micro blisters in that thing. But, you know, they, like the, the little micro blisters that you get on like a good French fry or a good bagel, mm. like the thing that mm. adds surface area and extra crunch, um, that's, that's, um, that's, that's the trick. Would this be with peeled potatoes or could you do it with like you can, you unpeeled can fingerling potatoes? Uh, you, well, if you're using finger, so you do, you do want to like expose the flesh. Um, Got so it. if so you're using you fingerling potatoes, you, yeah, you, you do want to, um, either split them, um, or use larger, but you know, it works best with russet potatoes. Peeled or, russet um, potatoes. Uh, russet potatoes that are cut into pieces. Gotcha. Um, yeah. So, so like, even if you, if you cut the potatoes up, um, and you boil them, then there's enough of this like sort of mashed potatoes 
paste that kind of sloughs off the cut surfaces that it ends up coating um, the peeled side, you know, the, the, the side with the peel as well. Right. So that that side gets enough surface area and crisp up as well. I've always been a waxy potato man. I'm not even, I honestly, like, I'm not even a potato guy. I'm not a lover of potatoes the, the way that many people are. I'm fine with potatoes, but, you know, I've French fries, I'm a, I'll take onion rings. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, but I've always been a waxy potato guy because I, I hate that, I, I don't like a, and I don't like the texture of, of the inside of a potato all that much. Mm. Like if I eat a baked potato often, I just add a lot of dairy to it. Oh, yeah, uh, sure. To make it smoother and so on and so forth. When I, I, so I had started making this recipe of yours, Kenji, with waxy potatoes and it works great. I mean, it was, it was revelatory. I was like, wow, this is fantastic. And then one day I had only been to a, like a, a small regular grocery store and all they had was russets. And I said, well, I'll just grab a few russet potatoes and I'll, it's, I, it said you could use waxy or, or russet in that, in that roast potato recipe. I'll try these. The result was spectacular. And the, the crust that they develop when they're banging around because of the way the, uh, the altered pH in the boiling uh, gets them is so delightful. And then you get that wonderful, you know, with russet potatoes, if you get it right, the, the inside is like a total dream. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of moist and fluffy. So I have two questions. One, Kenji, where, where can I get this recipe? Uh, you can get the recipe on Serious Eats. I think it's called The Best Roast Potatoes Ever um, or on my YouTube channel where it's also called The Best Roast Potatoes Ever. I tend to Google Kenji potatoes. Yeah, that's that a good one. work too. <laughs> and the second question is, since Jesse Thorne, you asked this and recommended this recipe on, on uh, to our friend Nick Weiger, co-host of the Doughboys, I'll ask you, Kenji, now, what is your favorite hot salad? <laughs> <laughs> Um, what's the I, best I, I, way? What, let me put it this way: What's the best way to heat up a garden salad so that Nick Weiger can enjoy it? <laughs> um, I like I like a grilled potato salad. So like grilled potatoes and grilled spring onions. So like like uh, fingerling potatoes that you boil, split, and then and then th- uh, toss with olive oil and then uh, throw in the grill and then grill some some spring onions or scallions next to that and then also grill a lemon. Um, and you toss that all together and you squeeze the lemon over it and add some like really good olive oil. I'd say that is my favorite. Wow, salad. That one goes out to Nick Weiger because that was an in joke pertaining to another podcast <laughs> in which Nick Weiger is constantly being teased that he likes hot salad as though he microwaves his his garden salads. <laughs> but you actually, and I apologize for roping you into this in joke that you didn't know was an in joke. But you you answered it perfectly. That is a hot salad. That's a, a beautiful hot salad for you, Nick Weiger. My friend. Now, let's speaking of potatoes, I think we do have a potatoes themed case. Jeffrey says, is it permissible to serve turnips alongside potatoes as a side dish? I say yes. Although they're both root vegetables, a turnip provides a greater range of nutrients and fiber. The potato is merely starch and calories. Well, it also has the amino acids that kept the entire nation of Ireland alive until they stopped having potatoes. My wife argues they are too similar to share space on the same plate. Hogwash. You could have a rutabaga and a potato on the same plate. Carrots, beets, any other root vegetable. I argue her conflict simply boils down to color. Nothing else. Yeah, so I would say that definitely the most important consideration that I have, Kenji, Mm -hmm. when planning a menu and thinking of what the plate is going to look like, my first thought is, Am I serving enough range of fiber? (laughs) 
No, seriously, uh, Kenji, what, what do you think about this? I'd say they're they're quite different. I don't know. I mean, um, I, I think it's totally permissible. Um, you know, although though, like I generally tend to keep my meals at home simple, so it's like. You know, like I probably wouldn't. Yeah, nothing so fancy as a, a turnip and a potato. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, like if I if I am going to grab one a root vegetable, I probably just grab one. Um, but you know, right. sometimes like at a ho- like at holidays, like I'll roast a whole bunch of different root vegetables together, and I think that's fine. Um, uh, if if I'm making you know like mashed turnips or mashed rutabaga, adding a potato to that is great because the potato brings texture, whereas right. like the rutabaga or the turnip bring flavor. Um, yeah, I'd say they're I'd say they're definitely different enough. How um, would you describe the the flavor of a turnip? Because I've had them, but I'm having a hard time. Uh, m- I would say they are like them. vaguely. So so they're a little sweet and a little mm. spicy, and and the aroma is vaguely of like feet, but good feet, you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> feet that have, feet that have grown up and grown and have been marinated in nice soil. Um, yeah. yeah, they're they're a little. They're a little footy, and and if you you know we, we do a lot of pickling at my restaurant, like we ferment a lot of things. If you if you ferment um, radishes or turnips or rutabagas, those, those kind of like sort of watery root vegetables, they um, that that kind of amplifies the footiness of them. Also in a good way, I think, but um, that, but people might disagree on that. What would you do, Kenji, if if you had to say this were some kind of cooking game show, mm-hmm. and you were forced to serve a meal? That includes potatoes and turnips and a third item. What would be the balancing item for those three? Potatoes and turnips. Um, it really does feel like we're like we're eating in the Middle Ages all of a sudden. <laughs> um, a, ch- a chicken. Yeah, I think I it guess. would be a blackbird pie. <laughs> I, I would roast. I would roast some kind of probably some kind of meat with them. Unless you're talking about like Jess, this is just going to be a side dish. In which case, you know, it, you know, honestly, it would be it would be butter. <laughs> You know, yeah. actually, thinking back on this, um, I think the main the main thing that that differentiates a, a roasted potato and a roasted turnip is the, is the texture. You know, where a, ro- a potato is kind of dense and starchy, a turnip has a, you know it, like those, those turnips and radishes when you roast them, they get that kind of sort of like it, it's almost like mini water balloons. Like they they have like kind of a watery texture, but mm-hmm. and and again, like watery sounds bad in the same way that like foot smelling sounds bad, but watery in a good way um, for a vegetable. <laughs> watery um, and foot smelling in a good way. Right. <laughs> I would say, Jeffrey, that turnips and potatoes are different enough flavor profiles to be served together. But I would agree with you, Jeffrey, that putting a turnip and a potato on a plate demands other foods that offer textural and flavor contrast, lest you invite your guests to think that this is actually the 14th century. So. <laughs> I mean, that's my whole thing. That's right. <laughs> there, there were no forks in medieval times. Thus, there are no forks at medieval times. That's the watchword <laughs> of my dining table. But if you, but if you wish to d- dine as does the king of chefs, potato, turnip, butter, that's all you need. Here's something from Greg. Dear Judge Hodgman, when cooking an already written recipe for the first time, I believe it's important to experience the recipe as the creator intended. My partner Aaron, on the other hand, alters published recipes to better suit our tastes without ever having made them as written. I'll concede, Aaron's an excellent cook. Her modified recipes rarely, if ever, turn out badly. However, I feel her insistence on modifications 
strips us of the opportunity to learn new things from the experts. I ask you forbid, Aaron, from recipe modifications except where necessary in the middle of the cooking process and allow that changes be planned and agreed upon only before we begin cooking. Hmm. Kenji, can I, this is confession time for me. Okay. Remember how I was talking about that chili recipe that you wrote? And how how (laughs) good it was? I didn't grind my own coriander. I'm sorry. Oh my goodness. (laughs) I used pre-ground coriander and cumin seed, and I didn't even put in the star anise. Look, we're not supposed to go outside. I didn't have those things. Any Texan will tell you without star anise, it's not chili. (laughs) So I don't, I don't, I, I can't actually say that I have actually had your recipe, even though the overall direction steered me to something really, really good. What do you think about Aaron's recipe meddling and Greg's dislike of it? I am 100% on Aaron's side here. So so first of all, I don't think you learn things from recipes in the same way that you don't learn about a neighborhood by by sort of following the term by term directions on your on your phone, you know? It's like like yeah. a recipe is there to get you from point A to point B. Um, but if you want to actually learn about the food, you need to, you need to like, you know, pull back and look at the bigger picture, do a little more research about where it's from, read the, read the accompanying story, unless it's about, you know, some, some individual person's grandmother, but, but, um, you know, a a recipe is there to just steer you from one place to another. It's, It's not there to sort of teach you about the food or teach you about the technique involved at all. So I, I say I'm totally on Aaron's side on this. Like if, if she, looks at a recipe um, and then pulls back and says, hey, wait a minute, like, this is something that I don't particularly like. Um, I'm going to do it this other way. Or like, I understand how chicken cooks well enough to know that I can do it this way instead of that way to fit my own personal tastes and parameters. Um, then I think she's taking everything that she should be taking from the recipe. Um, so that, that 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 would be my take. You know, like I, I write very sort of what people would describe as sort of very prescriptive recipes because um, they're very precise. Um, and, and they're precise... Because I know there are people, um, people out there like uh, Greg, who who don't really care so much to learn about the the externalities and and to, and to learn about the the context and just want to be able to get into the kitchen and and, and follow a process and get to a, a good end result and and then that's fine you know like I'm not I'm not judging Greg for that um, I am and you know that <laughs> that's why I write my recipes that way um, because I want to guarantee that if someone follows it they're going to get to the right end result but. Um, I don't think that's necessarily the best way to learn. Um, you, know, and, yeah. you know, and people, of course, learn in different ways. So, so maybe that is the best way to learn for, for Greg. But. I obviously, I, I agree with you. I mean, the only exception that I would point out on Greg's behalf is that I am not a baker and mm. baking in, 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 perhaps it's my lack of experience. I'd be a little bit more comfortable with freestyle baking Mm-hmm. But baking baking recipes, I think you need to follow, especially if you're not an experienced baker. You need to follow pretty closely to get the desired result. But everything else, I mean, that's the fun. The fun is getting in there, experimenting, seeing what works, seeing what doesn't work, figuring out how the food acts and reacts against the different ingredients. And then you, every time you make a little adjustment and see a little difference you take new information to the next time you uh, cook and uh, and that's and that's the enjoyment of it to a yeah. great degree you know the the one thing i would say is that if erin strays from a recipe and then goes and complains about how it didn't work she is clearly in the wrong <laughs> right 
<laughs> yeah. If you're gonna if you're gonna post a comment about a recipe on online and complain that it didn't work, you had better have actually followed the recipe instead of just like taking whatever route you wanted to. Um, but in all other cases, I think it's fine. Remind me, Jesse Thorne, uh, before we wrap this session, to go back onto Serious Eats and delete my one star review <laughs> of Kenji's chili recipe for it not being star anisey enough. I guess now I realize that's on me. It was missing a certain licorice-adjacent flavor, in my opinion. Okay, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll hear a case against our guest, Kenji. <laughs> we'll be back in a moment on the Judge John Hodgman podcast. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff. Stuff about ordinary topics like cabbage and batteries and socks. Topics you'd never expect to be the title of the podcast. Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Find us by searching for the word secretly in your podcast app. And at MaximumFun.org. Welcome back to the Judge John Hodgman podcast. We're clearing the docket this week, and we've got something from Jay. Jay says... My dispute is with J. Kenji Lopez Alt at Kenji Lopez Alt, who, full disclosure, I do not know in person. I seek an order to have him unblock me on Twitter. <laughs> the inciting incident came on December 18th when I lightly admonished him on Twitter for amplifying a major spoiler for the latest Star Wars movie. In retrospect, perhaps the tone in my tweet was not as polite as it could have been, but I don't feel that it matches the harshness of other people that he justifiably blocks. I'm a huge fan of Kenji's and have had some positive interactions with him previously on Twitter, and I miss one of my favorite follows. So, Kenji, yes. we're not going to reveal Jay's Twitter name on this episode. Okay. Uh, we're not going to put Jay on blast. And I don't know how to evaluate Jay's complaint because I, Jay has deleted the tweet. <laughs> I think I'm, I'm pretty sure I know it. If it was about Star Wars, I'm pretty sure I know what the tweet is. Do you remember this incident? Well, okay. I think we're past spoiler territory now because, you know, whatever. The movie's been out for a long time and, and nobody's watching it anymore anyway. This is Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. Correct. Yes. Right. So, all right. So th I'm, I'm going to talk about this because this is actually one of my one of the things I'm most proud of in my life. 
Um, Blocking this one person? No, 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 no. The context. Um, So when when um, the Force Awakens, so I'm a huge Star Wars fan. Um, When the Force Awakens came out, um, I remember when it when it first came out on on you know I saw it in theaters a bunch of times, and then I saw it in an airplane like a few months later. You know, it always comes out on airplanes before it comes out at home. Um, And so I was watching it on air on an airplane, and I was watching. I was like, Hey, you know what? I think Ray is um, is a descendant of Palpatine. Um, mm. And I and I wrote an essay on Medium. It's published on Medium. It's still there. Called Ray is a Palpatine, um, where I where I sort of delineated all of my arguments for why Ray is a Palpatine. Wait, you wrote um, this back when the Force Awakens came out? Yes, yes. And then uh, the last, uh, not the last Jedi, the the Rise of Skywalker came out, and I was like, and you know, and then and then the last Jedi came out. I was like, God, God, like you know, I I kind of wrote it as a joke, and I was like, this is so stupid. Like, of course she's not. And then it turns out that that actually was the plot of the movie. Um, so then I think I th- I sent out a tweet that simply said, uh, the day Star Wars came out, I guess when I saw it, I think I sent out a tweet that just said called it. Um, I don't think I even mentioned it was in reference to Star Wars, although people who follow me probably knew what I was talking about. I mean, you subtweeted you sub- because- the rise of Skywalker. You, when it came out and it was revealed that Ray yes. was a Palpatine, you said called it, Correct. referring back to your Medium post. Which clearly gave J.J. Abrams the idea to write the movie that way. <laughs> right, <But> right. <laughs> now we're going to get into a time travel paradox that I don't want to get into. <laughs> anyway, I wrote called it, and <clears throat> um, and and I and in the tweet I didn't even mention the rise of Sky. Like I didn't mention Star Wars. I didn't mention anything. Right. I'm pretty sure. I don't know. Maybe maybe I did. But anyhow, um, I think that's what he got angry about saying I spoiled something. And I was like, you have to be in this very, very small, tiny subsection of the Star Wars audience that also follows me and also remembers this Medium post I wrote in 2017 or whenever it was, um, to to have been to be able to claim that that was a spoiler. Um, and and then uh, and then he got and, and then I said this movie is not even out yet. Or oh, I guess it was before the movie came out that I said it. Maybe right. maybe I saw somewhere. I don't I don't remember. Um, so I guess I must be wrong about telling this whole thing. But anyhow, I'm sure that's no no what the no. I'm, I'm looking was. I'm looking at it here. You said, WTF spoilers, this movie's not even out yet. And then Jay said, then why are you replying to this person with 300 followers to spread to your 60,000 ones like me? I don't understand what Jay is saying. Jay's concern there is that uh, Kenji, by responding to Jay, uh, is calling attention to Jay's tweet for people who follow Kenji, but not Jay. They might see that post because Kenji replied to yeah, it. Yeah, that's that's oh, what yeah. it was. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah, and I think it was when the trailer came, maybe when the trailer came out and and the trailers kind of made it clear that Palpatine was in it. It was something like that. It had something to do with Ray and Palpatine and uh and uh I apparently spoiled it by saying something about the trailer. Um you know, I have a very like sort of itchy trigger finger on the block button on Twitter because it's like I have so many, you know, it's it's such a negative space. It's like I if if anyone gives me any kind of grief at all, I just block them because it's like it's just not it's not worth it, you know. And and yeah. and I'm also one of those people that kind of lets it get to me more than I know I should, you know. So it's like I kind of try and self regulate on that by just if if someone's giving me any trouble, I just block them and and that's it. But you know what I'll do right I'll, I'll, what I'll do right this second is I will unblock I will unblock Jay. Oh oh, that's very gracious done. of it you. It's done. Wow. <laughs> I was gonna rule in your favor. I was gonna say you know. Rules of the road. Like, all we're left with right now is talking on phones and Zooms and Twitters and everything else. We got to remember there are other humans on the other side. And we got to remember 
everyone's different and they have their own boundaries and you got to respect those boundaries, but that's very gracious of you to unblock J. And I can now reveal, since you have done so, that the J in this case is Jay Inslee, the governor of Washington State. Wow. <laughs> no, it's not. I am following Jay now and I'm going to, I'll keep an eye on this situation. Let me know. Let me know if Jay gets out of hand. We heard recently from a listener named Mary about a list of pizza types that we discussed in the episode, The Hammer of Distraction. Do you remember this pizza type list, John? I do. And it came from Serious Eats. It was a, it was a big, fascinating list of regional pizza styles compiled uh, by Adam Kuban. Uh, many, many styles that I had never heard of, including uh, the apparently very controversial St. Louis style pizza, which is on an unleavened matzo-like crust with a weird processed cheese called Prevel. And we spent a lot of time enjoying this list of pizza on the podcast earlier, Kenji, just to give you some context. All right. I like St. Louis style pizza, by the way. Really? The secret is to not think of it as pizza and just think of it, think of it as pizza flavored nachos. Oh. And then it's actually quite good. I, uh, Bail of Jesse, I can't hear what he's saying anymore because I blocked him. <laughs> but what does Mary have to say? She wrote about Polish street pizza. She says, I grew up in Warsaw uh, from 1987 to 1991. My dad was an American diplomat there. One of the culinary delights of the period was a street food called zapikanka, which is French bread sliced lengthwise, topped with, in order, mushrooms, cheese, and ketchup. Does it sound gross? Maybe, but I still make it at home, though nothing can recreate whatever ersatz cheese the Polish government sold at that time. Mushrooms and mushroom foraging also play a huge role in Polish culture, so those were always good. Wow. Does she give a, a recipe for her home zapikanka? Yeah, well, here's, here's the instructions. She says, I make it by topping the bread with sautéed sliced cremini mushrooms, then Emmentaler cheese... Broil until the cheese is just starting to brown. Drizzle on a good spicy sweet ketchup. And if you still have it, dill, fresh or dried, another quintessential Polish ingredient. Something about the ketchup, the dill, and the cheese is unbelievably tasty. Your friends had serious eats have no data related to zapikanka, but I am sure you will find the Wikipedia article interesting, especially the economic changes it heralded. I'll leave it to the listeners and, and our guest, Kenji Lebezalt, to check out that Wikipedia article because it genuinely is interesting. It's a, a very, <laughs> It was a poverty food that has been brought back. I actually, I actually did. Uh, I did some homework and I read this. I, wow. read, I read that article. Good job. Have you ever had this before? I, no, I haven't. I've, ne- I've never heard of it, you know, but it's um, it, it sounds good to me. I, I, I can't imagine that the... Um, the ketchup is like Heinz, you know, and, and and from looking at the Wikipedia article, the 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 photos of the of the stuff in Poland doesn't look like it's what we would think of as ketchup per se. But it's a spicy sweet that we're we're coming full circle here. Mary specifically recommends a spicy sweet ketchup. Yeah. So yeah, European ketchups I, are different for sure. So so can I tell you something? And and this is maybe an embarrassing embarrassing quarantine story. Something that I did um, the night that I read this article. Please. 
okay, <laughs> I wanted to make some pizza. This was like at one in the morning. I think I just gotten done editing some videos or saying I wanted to make some pizza. And normally what I do if it's 1 a.m. and I want to make pizza is I, is I use a tortilla um, and I crisp it up in a skillet and I put tomato sauce and whatever on it. Um, I did not have a tortilla and I did not have tomato sauce. But before the quarantine, I did go and buy a bunch of cans of um, Campbell's tomato soup. Uh, yeah. The conden- uh-huh. condensed the condensed kind. Yeah. Um, and so I made a dough with um, with with baking powder. And, and, that, and just that day, actually, I had posted a video about... Um, how to make um, no-knead bread. And somebody in the comments on YouTube asked me, can you do this with baking powder? I was like, no, you cannot make this with baking powder. And then I was like, wait a minute, did I, did I jump too fast on that guy for suggesting that you can make this with baking powder? And so I was like, you know what, I'm going to try and make pizza tonight. It's 1 a.m. I want to make pizza. I don't have a tortilla, so I'm going to make it with baking powder. Um, so I made a dough with um, flour, all-purpose flour, salt, baking powder, um, and some milk. Um, and then I rolled it out and it took like all of 10 minutes and then I spread it and I didn't have any tomatoes. Um, so I, I put some Campbell's canned tomato uh-huh. soup on it, yeah. condensed. I didn't dilute it first. No. Uh, and then I had a bunch of pickled chilies, spicy. Mm-hmm. So I was like, all right, so the spiciness will, will, will balance out the, the like overt sweetness of this canned tomato soup. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I used pepper jack cheese um, mm-hmm. and I baked it in a toaster oven and it was delicious. Um, it, it wow. was also 1 a.m. and and I was like super hungry and um, and uh, and I just had a Pliny like a little a, a very strong beer. Um, so you know I, I would say my my taste buds might have been tempered by a few things, but um, <laughs> but I can definitely see the appeal of like sweet and spicy tomatoey processed tomatoey stuff with cheese on top of a bread like product. Yeah, I think um, it, I, well, listen, I I, I want to try this Zapikanka <laughs> myself. I do think it's an interesting blend of sweet and spicy, and I'm very fascinated by the Wikipedia article. As far as what you made, your pizza, Kenji, your 1 a.m. quarantine <laughs> pizza, this might earn me a block, but I'm going to say <laughs> it reminds me of that bread you described. No need. I no need it. No. <laughs> wow. You, you know what's interesting, though, is that the history of the, the Zapikanka, that it was a... Um, it was a you know poor person's food um, that it, it mirrors the, the the history of the French bread pizza, which um, yeah. which was invented in um, uh, Cornell. Um, really? The yeah yeah Cornell in the sixties. Um, in fact, I, I know that there's an article up on Serious Seats by Adam Kuban. Adam Kuban, by the way, he was the founder of both a hamburger today and Slice which were the, the, the respectively the hamburger blog and the pizza blog that both got incorporated into Serious Seats like very, very early in his days. And he was the managing editor of Serious Seats for a while. But he's like he's like one of the foremost authorities on pizza uh, in the world, I would say. But uh, I know he wrote an article about when the, found, the, the guy who invented um, French bread pizza uh, died. I think it was like 2007 or eight or so, something like mm-hmm. that. Um, mm-hmm. um, but, uh, but yeah, it was, it was known as poor man's pizza. Um, and he, and it was sold to students um, at Cornell University. Well, Kenji Lopez, all thank you so much for joining us and bringing so much good humor, uh, information, strange confessions, and <laughs> and, uh, and and plain spicy sweet good fun to the Judge Sean Hodgman podcast. I leave you with this final question. All right. You say you like St. Louis style pizza made with Provel cheese, a processed cheese that is a uh, it's, it's claims to be a combination of provolone, Swiss, and something else. Okay. Would you order 10 pounds of Provel 
off Gold Belly for $80. Is that a good deal or a bad deal? <laughs> um, so I would only order... Uh, well, I would only order it knowing that I probably could resell it um, <laughs> or, or give it away to friends. Like I, like I have these food connections, so it's like I could, I could order it and split it with people. Which I don't okay. know that everyone could do, or I could order it and serve it on some kind of ironic dish at my restaurant. Um, you're saying that you're a wholesaler. You got street dealers. <laughs> you're gonna yeah. cut you're it. You're gonna chop the brick. You're gonna chop it up, combine it with some craft singles, and make it go. Now we're getting back to Raekwon style of chefery. <laughs> well, Jay Kenji Lopez Alt, I as a as a parting gift for for playing the Judge John Hodgman game. Uh, get ready to get 10 pounds of Prevel on the mail from me. Thank I you so can't much. Wait. <laughs> Thank you. Wait, hold on. We can't let Kenji go. I put a gun on the counter in the first act and we have to shoot it in the final act. Kenji, how come when I make your amazing recipe for chocolate chip cookies, they turn out too tall and smooth and cakey, like almost like a muffin? Because I see the pictures of people who've made your recipe on the mm. Serious Eats subreddit, which maybe I subscribe to. Maybe I'm that dorky. It's possible. <laughs> uh, and they they look like beautiful chocolate chip cookies. So I know it's something that I'm doing. What mm. makes chocolate chip cookies turn? I know that aging the dough in the refrigerator overnight or even right. for uh, 48 hours helps the enzymes uh, uh, develop the flavors and, and all these other things that are great about your recipe. Your recipe is really good. How come they turn out cakey, though? Uh, I'll, give, I'll give you three avenues to explore. Um, okay. One of them could be that your oven is not calibrated. Um, so yeah. if you have a, get an oven thermometer in there, make sure that it's at the right temperature. Um, another could be that you're using, potentially you're using a baking sheet that's not an aluminum rimmed baking sheet. And maybe you're using one of those uh, insulated baking sheets, which, I, which people sometimes use, or, or um, you're using some other metal. So the, the conductive qualities are different. Um, so if that's the case, get an aluminum rim baking sheet or, or an aluminum flat baking sheet. Um, the third thing I can think of is that potentially you are... Sorry, there's there's going to be four things. Uh, the third thing is that potentially you're using a unbleached flour, something like King Arthur or some fa fancy flour, as opposed to regular gold medal Pillsbury flour. Um, the, the bleaching process changes the way it behaves. Uh, and finally, the last thing I can think of is that you're maybe letting your dough get too warm uh, before you bake it. Um, so th so there's like craggy tops. Um, you, you make the dough balls and then you rip them in half and you and you stick the smooth yeah. ends back together. Um, and if your dough is too warm, then that, that process like doesn't really work because it all kind of melts before it starts to set in the oven. So you, you want your dough to be kind of cold um, as it goes into the oven. I think it's going to be my oven's fault. <laughs> Jesse, I'm no king of chefs, right? I'm no Kenji Lopez-Alt, but may I ask a question? It might help yeah. you understand. How much star anise are you putting in? Enough? <laughs> That was the other thing. When I reviewed the recipe, which I did, I had a comment and I said, I did one star, not enough licorice adjacent flavors. Uh, P.S. I omitted the star anise. <laughs> the docket is clear. Kenji Lopez Alt. His restaurant is called Worst Hall in San Mateo, California. Uh, you can buy uh, meal boxes uh, for hospitals and community centers at toasttab.com slash worst hall or on the worst hall website uh, his children's book every night is pizza night comes out september 1st and you can find his writing on the internet uh, on serious eats and in the new york times kenji i'm such a fan of yours i'm so grateful you came on the show thank you very much 
Thanks so much for having me. Don't forget to follow him on Twitter at Kenji Lopez Alt and see how little it takes to get him to block you. (laughs) (laughs) Our brilliant producer is Jennifer Marmer, safer at home with baby Ezra and husband Shane right now. Uh, You can find Kenji on Twitter at Kenji Lopez Alt. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Jesse Thorne and at Hodgman. We're on Instagram at Judge John Hodgman. Uh, John uh, is on Instagram at John Hodgman, where he has been interviewing pets for his daily weekday talk show. Make sure to hashtag your Judge John Hodgman tweets, hashtag JJHO, and check out the Maximum Fun subreddit at MaximumFun.reddit.com to discuss this episode. Submit your cases to Judge John Hodgman at MaximumFun.org slash JJHO or email Hodgman at MaximumFun.org. We'll talk to you next time on the Judge John Hodgman podcast. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned, audience supported.